So today we are going to continue in the book of anybody? Genesis. A couple of you get credit because you called it out before the slide came up. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 21, uh, verses 22 through 34 today. Um, so you can follow along in your Bible. If you don't have one, you can go in the pew, in, uh, pew we don't pews anymore, there's chairs in front of you. We'll also have the slides up on the screen, but there is something cool about always opening up your own Bible. Remember, we're talking about what Abraham and the difficult journey of faith and what it looks like to live by faith and what it looks like not to live by faith so that we may be people who live by faith. Thank you, Glenn. Appreciate that. Now, today, as we get into the end of Genesis 21, we're going to find Abraham. He's continuing to sojourn, which means he's moving from place to place in his mobile tents kind of living in the land that God has promised him, and yet he is yet to claim. And we're going to see him connect with a couple leaders. And in, and in that, we're going to see them work through some concerns that they have with each other. So here we go, Genesis chapter 21, starting in verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me, Hereby, God, that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, which is even further descendants, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned, traveling through. And Abraham said, I swear. Verse 25, then when Abraham reproved, rebuked Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until this day. So Abraham took sheep and oxen, oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, and then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a taramask tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines, this is the word of the Lord. So Abraham and Abimelech, they meet each other along with Abimelech's military commander. Abimelech has some worries about Abraham. He's like, dude, God's with you. Are you going to deal fairly with me? Now this could be because Abimelech is the same Abimelech that we see Abraham lie to in Genesis 20. It could be a different one because Abimelech was more of a title than it was a name. It's also a part that, uh, possible that Abimelech heard about uh, Abraham lying to people in the past to save his own skin. And so he's a little bit worried about this powerful guy coming into his land and then being false with him. Abraham assures him, I'm going to deal fairly with you. And then the focus of their conversation uh, changes to a well that belonged to Abraham. And it seems that some of Abimelech's men have taken charge of this well. And this is a huge deal back then. Because they did not have the generous access to water that most of us now enjoy. They did not have piped in water. They did not have filters through their fridges inside their tents, right? They didn't have bottles of water delivered from the, you know, living water company, 
to their tents, they had to live near fresh water. Or they, it was necessary that they had to dig wells. In fact, here's a picture of what uh, they think Abraham's possible well is located uh, here in Beersheba. Thank you, Frank, for getting that up so quickly. That was well done. Now, if this was, <laughs> someone got it, all right. If this was Abraham's well, you got to understand what went into this. This was before backhoes and bobcats and all those other heavy machinery. You're talking about old school shovels, buckets, and this sucker is 44 feet deep, 12 feet in diameter, dug by hand. And so building a well was a huge investment. And you had to guard that investment carefully because if you did not guard your well, your the water, what you needed for life, your enemies would come and take your well over or sometimes just to be dirty, they would fill up your well with dirt so you could no longer use it. Now, it may not be over a well, but this verse, this passage reminds us a truth that we have all come to learn. Wherever on God's green earth there is more than one person, there will be conflict. It only takes two to tango. Relationships and conflict, they go hand in hand. Can I get an amen? It could be because of uh, poor communication, different perspectives, competing interests, someone feeling like they've been dealt unfairly, Unmet uh, expectations, power struggles, jealousy, envy, ego, pride, unwanted changes. Heck, sometimes you have conflict just because someone had not had their coffee yet, right? Or they're just downright hangry, right? They're angry just because they have not ate enough. And they just need someone to drive them for a piece of pizza, right? There, I mean, there is conflict in our lives in every area. And now these are all contributing factors, but the root cause, the Bible tells us, of all conflict is sin. Because we have sin in our lives, we default to living for ourselves. James talks about this, going after our own passions and our own desires. So because of this, there will always be conflict, always. I mean, have you ever wondered, especially if you sit here and you're like, I don't know if I believe in God, why there's always conflict? Because of sin. And I have no doubt that all of you in here today have conflict in your lives, some more than others. You all have conflict with somebody, without question. It's not possible to not have that conflict. And, and so my hope and my desire and my prayer this week was that as we pulled from this text, that it, we would see what truths we could find that would help us to navigate the conflict that we have in our lives. Now, a quick disclaimer before I go into it. As a pastor, I deal with conflict all the time. Conflict between other people. Sometimes conflict I start myself. Conflict everywhere. Now, I I, I say this because sometimes when I preach messages, people will come up to me um, and they'll be like, were you preaching to me? Like as if, were you trying to sneak in something and you were writing a message and you're saying, man, I hope Mark is here today because he needs to hear this wicked sinner. And what I often try to remind them is that 
Whatever they're going through, they are not the only one going through it. Their, their struggles, their, their sins, as we read in Corinthians, it's not uncommon. And, and, and so today, I promise that whatever I say to you, I wasn't sitting here going, man, I hope so-and-so was here to say it. I simply said, Lord, help me to, to speak things that would be beneficial to your people and to myself. And so, uh, and, and, and I hope you know me well enough that if I have a problem, I will tell you that I have a problem for better or for worse. And so I pray today, if something twinges you when I'm speaking, your thought will be like, okay, is the Holy Spirit trying to say something to me? Fair enough? Or not? <laughs> I say this, this is, and this is really important because I believe the enemy will do whatever he can to distract you from hearing what God wants you to hear today. Because humanity, by default, stinks at handling conflict. We're horrible at it. And the devil loves that. And so I pray, I pray that your heart will be open. God makes a lot of commands a lot of encouragements when it comes to conflict. I want you to hear this, especially if you sit here today and your faith and trust is in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Hear this. In Matthew 5, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Romans 12, he says, far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Matthew 14, make it, Romans 14, make every effort to do what leads to peace. Hebrews 12, make every effort to live in peace with all men. Ephesians 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And in Matthew 5, Jesus says, if you're going to the altar, because they still went to the temple in those days, and you have a gift to sacrifice for the Lord, and you go to present it to him, and you know that your brother has something against you, leave whatever it is there, stop worshiping him, go be reconciled to your brother, and then come back and offer your gift. It cannot be any more clear how we should live as followers of Christ. And I think one of the reasons that the Bible commands this is because of how much trouble conflict makes in our lives. Proverbs 17, 14 says, the beginning of strife is like the letting out of water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. And doesn't just break out to touch you and the person you're in conflict with, it touches those around you. A conflict in business, it infects other employees around you. If there's a conflict in marriage, it drips, it flows right down to the kids. If there's a conflict between Christians, it hurts the church. And so on and so on and so on and so on. And it's important to remember this because I think we can become so narrowly focused. When we're in conflict with somebody, it's about what they did, how we're upset with them, and, and we just have blinders. That's all we see. And we don't see the damage that we're doing to those around us. The hurt that we cause when we don't deal with it, and the hurt we cause when we deal with it in a way that does not bring honor to God. So my prayer one of my other prayers this morning is that, that God would show you any place where the conflict you have with somebody else is hurting those around you, that he would convict you of that this morning. And I'm going to take an extra minute and talk about the unity of the church. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell 
in unity. Now, these two men were not Christians, because Christ had not died yet, but Abraham had a faith and he followed God, even though he didn't do it great all the time. We don't know about Abimelech. Doesn't seem to be because of the way that he talks about Abraham having his own God. But I mention the church nonetheless, because as I said time and time and time again, the greatest threat to the gospel is the disunity of the church. It is not the devil. He has no power that we do not give him. It's not influence of culture. It is disunity of the church. Because when we're unified, we can grow together through anything. So this is what the enemy wants. He wants the church to fracture. Because then the world does not see the power of God in it. The world looks at the church and they see them disunified and they're like, well, they don't look any different than the rest of the world, so there must not be anything special about this Jesus. C.S. Lewis wrote this uh, book, fictional book, called The Screw Screw Tape Letters. And it follows this high-level, top-notch demon named Screwtape. And he, he mentors this young, young demon named Wormwood. Very colorful names. And in this book, Wormwood has been assigned uh, this brand-new Christian. And, and Screwtape refers to this brand-new Christian as his patient. And the whole job of Wormwood is to destroy or try to destroy the faith that this new Christian has. And so he sends a letter, Screwtape, to Wormwood to give him some advice. And he says this, one of our greatest allies, this is screw tape, the head demon writing, one of, our great, one of our greatest allies at the present is the church itself. Now, Wormwood, do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all of time and space and rooted in eternity. A terrible, terrible army it is with banners held high. Wormwood, that I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately for us, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient, this new Christian, sees is a half-finished church filled with lots and lots of flaws. Screwtape saying, like, this church, the church of God, is powerful beyond words. When you look at it from start to finish in God's plan, but he said, because People can't see it. They're in the moment. They see the fractures and the broken parts. It, it, it doesn't seem to be built so well. But he says, Wormwood, don't be deceived. The power of this church is greater than us. And if, and, and if Christians ever figure this out, if the world ever figures this out, our work will not stand a chance. And I think it's a good question for us to ask ourselves what do the people around you, your family and your friends and your co-workers, what are they learning about Christians? What are they learning about the church of God in the way that you respond to that conflict? There's so many reasons we need to examine how to handle conflict in our lives and that Reasons that we can learn. And it doesn't address every area of conflict, but some key things that we can find from this interaction. For example, in verse 25, it says, when Abraham reproved Abimelech, which means to complain, to take the task, to ask about, uh, when, when Abimelech, about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. In other words, what did Abraham do here? 
he went and talked with Abimelech about the problem. He went and talked to him. Once again, as I said at the very on, the Bible calls us to be peacemakers. And one of the ways we do that is by actually talking to the person that we have conflict with. And let me be clear. As one pastor wrote, whose name I forget, there's a difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. Okay? The problem we have in the church is way too many peacekeepers mean that they don't ever deal with problems. And you can do this in your marriages, in your family life, wherever, where we will stuff problems deep down or we won't deal with them at all. We'll pretend they're not there. Or we'll just say, well, there's no hope, so we don't address them. Some of them just hoping that they will go away. And the ironic thing, and if you are a person who does this, you have learned, hopefully you've learned by now, that the longer you ignore conflict, the greater it becomes. It is like a cancer that will continue to grow and eat at your marriage, at your family, at your business, at your church, in all of your relationships. It only grows bigger and affects more people. And sometimes it affects people that are not even directly related to you. Because every time you stuff hurt and pain and you leave it unresolved and you don't deal with it, it shades how you see everything else. Like putting on a pair of gun glasses that maybe have a red tint. It shades everything you see. And so that when you get in another conflict because with people maybe in similar relationships or similar experiences, this will come right back up. I've seen it time and time again as a pastor. And then I realize that it's so uncomfortable to deal with conflict. It is so uncomfortable. We hate it because it disturbs things. It disturbs the peace. But if you look at the entire world, all of creation, the only way anything grows is when it disturbs the things around it. You take a plant, watch a plant grow, disturbs the ground, more and more the ground as it grows. The same, it happens in our relationships. We have to be disturbed. Things around us have to be disturbed for us to grow. Conflict can actually be a very good tool in our lives to help us grow, to root out the sin and the selfishness that is there. But we have to talk about it. And when I say talk about it, I mean talk to them, not talk about them. Far too many of us, and we have this desire that when we get angry at somebody, we'll either shove it all the way down and pretend it's not there while it eats at us, or we'll go and find sympathizing ears around us to make us feel better, which the Bible calls gossip and slander. I remember one pastor, he liked this. He says, I liken gossip to the pornography of the mouth. It's a cheap thrill that makes someone feel better without zero commitment to the person who's objectified. Now, I should be clear. If we're having conflict with somebody and it's not going well and we're completely lost on how to handle it, it is a good thing to bring a spiritual leader into your life Someone who is mature in scriptures and in the spirit to help talk you through it. But it has to be someone who you know will call you out on the carpet. If you are acting emotionally, if you're being immature, that you know that they will tell you. That they are not there just to say, oh, poor you. But they're there to help you look at the situation in light of Jesus and then tell you not what the other person should do, but what you should do. 
to honor God in that situation. But if you're seeking out just sympathizers, it's just slander and gossip. And if you're seeking out like eight people to give you wisdom, or if you're going to people because you want them to pray about it, you need to talk to the person. A known person said that a lot of problems in this world would disappear if we talked to each other instead of about each other. Who are you not talking to this morning? About conflict. Who are you not talking to? What have you repressed, shoved down for so long maybe, and you're not even talking about it anymore as it eats away? May the Lord convict us all. And when I say talk about it, I mean actually talk about it. We have a temptation today that Abraham did not have, and that's texting. We have this temptation today to text people all of our feelings. Come on, we've all probably received them and sent them vomit texts, right? Where we vomit all of our thoughts and feelings in a text to somebody. And in my opinion, when we do that, it is one of the most selfish ways of communicating. Because in the end, we're giving them no chance to respond and and giving no chance for a back and forth to move forward together. We just say, they need to know how I feel, so blah. And then they're, they're stuck with it on their own. Not being able to see your body language, to hear your tone, nothing. Texting like that, it's about you. We've all done it. Now, there are maybe times where writing is formed. There's times where I've advised people to write a letter to someone. I said, I want you to write the letter. You sit on it for a day, and then you look at it again, and then you sit on it for another day to, to, to weed out all of the hurt and the, and, and the extra words that really are not beneficial. There are times for that. But most of the time, we just need to talk to somebody. When we text, it allows the other person to input their own uh, voice to it, their, uh, their own, uh, they're picturing you with their own, what, what they look like, what did you look like when you were writing it, how did you mean it? They're, they're, in, they're putting that on you because they can't see you. And so you can meet something really nice and helpful and they take it worse, they take it horribly, like, you know, uh, Offbeat example, like you play a prank on somebody and they send you a text that says, I can't believe you did that. I am going to get you. There's two ways to read that. You can either, man, I can't believe you did that. I'm going to get you. Or I can't believe you did that. I will get you. I'm angry. It could mean either thing. When you send this to somebody, when you text all that, you're allowing all of their hurt and pain to filter what you have written to them. And your message can be totally lost. It is amazing how much our past pains and hurts color how we look at things today that we never moved through, that we never dealt with. We don't even see it. So we must take extra care to make sure that we're communicating well with one another. And that means putting in the long, hard work of talking to each other. Are you with me, church? Are you with me, church? You know what, and as a side note, 
This is just me going off for the moment. This is first opinion, chapter two. For the love of everything pure and holy, for those of you who text, when you say something funny in your text or lighthearted, for just the sanity of the world, use a smiley face. You people who never use emojis for anything, you are contributing an untold amount of angst and anxiety in this world as people try to discern what you meant. Just use a smiley face. The world will be a better place. Probably the war in Ukraine started over a text that had no smiley face. Use the emojis. You can do it. All right. I'm back off my soapbox. Now, one of the benefits of talking to somebody is that it puts to rest all of the assuming you have been doing. What happens when we're upset with someone? We sit there and we think about it, right? We think about what they did. We think about what they said, where they said it. We thought about what we said. Then we think about what we wish we would have said. And we start assuming their heart and their intentions with what they were doing. And then we emotionally latch on to our assumptions and we start responding based on those assumptions, which may or may not be true. I was reading about one author, uh, and I don't remember his name, and he, and he said that one time he wrote a few books by a few authors, and, um, and so he was so touched by their books, he wrote them all letters. Uh, and one of them was Eugene Peterson, which you've been in the Christian world any length of time, you know who he is. And he said that two of the people responded to him, but one person never wrote him back, which was Eugene Peterson. And he got offended by that because he said, I remember Eugene Peterson in one of his notes, books, said, hey, if you ever write me, I'll write you back. I'm I'm not a busy pastor. I will make time. And he said, so here's this pastor who said he'd make time. I wrote him a nice little letter, and he gives me nothing back. And he says, so like a year later, he's talking to some small group about something. And he said what he didn't realize is one of the people in that small group actually knew this uh, author, Eugene Peterson. And she came up to him afterwards and she said, hey, I know him. I'm going to see him in a few weeks. I'll tell him about your letter. And he said, sure enough, a few weeks later, he gets a letter from Eugene Peterson. And he says, I am so sorry that you have never heard from me. I have your letter. I lost the envelope. And it's been sitting on my desk, my response for the last year. And I, when I see it, I've pray, been praying that the Lord would give me a way to respond. And so then they met a few weeks later, and they, they had lunch together, and this, this author, he said, I apologize for assuming. And he said, Eugene was very gracious in his response. But this story brings up a great, great point. Like, sometimes we presume to understand people's hearts and their intentions and their mindsets, but we don't know the whole story. Yeah, I, it made me wonder, like, how the story of Abraham would have turned out differently if Abraham had just assumed that Abimelech was behind this whole well stealing instead of talking to him about it. It could have led to war. We see Abraham has a pretty powerful army in the past, right? They're not as big as they are today. So when you're thinking army, you're thinking huge. They're much smaller back then. We could have seen some, man, these guys are evil. I'm gonna go take this well back for the betterment of my people. I think the devil, the enemy loves nothing more to get in and fool us into thinking that we understand the truth about a situation, that we understand it clearly. And as I said, that we just don't understand. We don't even stop to think, man, are all my assumptions based off my hurt and unresolved conflict in the past? 
men, we don't even ever stop to think about it. We're just angry. We don't stop to think where the anger's from because we don't want to go that deep. Women, sometimes we just got all that anger and emotion. We just run with it. And none of us stop and say, man, where's this coming from? Or we don't even ask the question, do I have incomplete or inaccurate information? Is there something? We never ask the question, is there something I'm missing? And it makes me wonder, like, how much damage have I done in my life because I just assumed I knew what was going on? gentleman named Henry Longfellow, he said once that if we could read the secret history of our enemies, listen to this, we should find enough in each person's life, enough sorrow and suffering that it would disarm all hostility against them. Humility is the antidote to assumption. And then out of that humility, talking and asking questions. Now, I think another important thing that we see from here that we can pull is that these two came together and they agreed how to move forward. Verse 27, it says, So Abraham took sheep and oxen, gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. And then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that it will be a witness for me that I dug this well. What are they doing? They're creating a treaty. They're setting expectations for the future. They're determining, okay, this is how we in agreement are going to move forward. Expectations are so important. We talk about this in marriage counseling. They, they're so important in, in having a healthy relationship, and they can be so destructive in a relationship. They, they set the stage for, for misunderstandings and, and disappointments and, and really unmet needs. And so when we clarify in any relationship expectations moving on, especially out of conflict, man, here's where we've been, what's happened, let's figure out this path forward, it changes things. When we sit there and, and, and we just don't say, these are my expectations, this is what you're going to do, but we sit there and say, let's contribute and compromise and negotiate because sometimes, and we don't think about this, our expectations are unrealistic of somebody. If I have an expectation of Ella to start jumping hurdles, right, that's unrealistic. Sometimes we forget that because all we're focusing is on what we want, and we want it now. So I praise God and I thank him that he does not have unrealistic expectations of me. When you do this, when you come in agreement and you're like setting expectations together, you know what you're doing? You're focusing on the relationship. And too far, too often, we just focus on wanting to be right. Tell me I'm right, tell me you were wrong, and let's just do what I want. But all throughout Scripture, you see an example of serving one another, loving one another as you want to be loved. Philippians 2 says this, Do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I also, but I want you to see something extra here in this, this whole lamb thing. Abraham gives extra lambs as part of these expectations, as a part of this agreement. What is he doing here? He's going the extra mile, he's giving Abimelech a gift. 
He does not need to do this. He already owns the well. He literally dug the well, the 12 feet in diameter, the 40 feet down. He did it. Technically, he's the one who's been wronged. And yet, he is still the one who took an extra step to ensure that there was peace. This is revolutionary in a world where we demand everybody else to take the extra step. I would have zero marriage counseling to do if this truth was understood. Someone once said that the worst distance between two people is misunderstandings. How would that that gap from misunderstanding change if it was the goal of both people to move towards each other? Not to demand that one moves to the other, but for them to move towards each other. To ask, how can I close this gap? How do I close this gap with my spouse, with my children, with my church family, you know, with, with my fellow employees, whoever it may be? How can I go the extra mile? Now, you might be sitting here and the Lord is putting on your mind exactly who you're in conflict with. And if you're human at all, there comes with that a level of anxiety and fear. We're all, even though some of us are more willing to handle conflict than others, we all have a fear of conflict. We all have a fear of being rejected. That if I bring this up, it's going to damage the relationship and whoever is on the other end of the conflict, it's going to destroy the relationship or make it even worse. Or we have a fear of loss of control. If I address this, then I have no idea what's going to happen. Or we are afraid being vulnerable because when you address a conflict with somebody, you are putting yourself out there. When you're addressing your feelings and your thoughts, you you are being vulnerable. You're opening them up. You're taking off the armor so they can just stab you if they want. Some of you, we have a fear because instead of being Holy Spirit pleasers, you are people pleasers. You want to make people happy so you can maintain a positive image with people. Some of you, you're afraid because you just have a lack of confidence. You have never been taught how to handle conflict. And so it scares you and you just shy away from it. These are all legitimate fears. They are all fears that every one of us has had at one point in our lives to some degree. But hear me now. None of these fears are a legitimate reason to be disobedient to God. None of them. Not a one. If you look at all the Bible verses that we read earlier, they allow for zero exceptions. And that means when you're not obedient to God, even if it's fear-driven, you are in sin. Because that is what sin is. It's not about just doing the wrong thing. It's also about not doing the right thing. So how do you do the right thing? How do you do it when you're afraid? This is it right here, Genesis 133. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. If your faith is in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
then you call, you call him the everlasting God. You do not get to pick and choose when he is the everlasting God. He either is the everlasting God or he is not. And for someone who believes in the everlasting God, fear is not a reasonable reason to sin by not addressing the conflict between you and whoever it is. Are you with me, church? Now, I've been asked, someone's asked me in the, the past, like, I'm really bad at conflict. I don't know what to do with conflict. You know what? It's okay to feel bad at conflict. It's okay to feel that way. It's just not okay to be disobedient. Pray. Ask the Holy Spirit. If you believe in the everlasting God, then you believe in the Holy Spirit who empowers you to live obediency. So ask him for help. Look up passages in the Bible to remind you what you're called to do. We met many over many of them today. Claim these in your lives. Pray them. Memorize them. Let them be the foundation for how you handle conflict and not fear. Find someone who can give you wisdom and how to proceed and will also hold you accountable. Because often we like, you know, I really need to talk to somebody, and then what do we do? We allow apathy or fear or busyness to get in the way. We never talk to them, and then as the time grows, it becomes more and more awkward, and we never address it, and it could be for years, decades even. Ask God for the right time of when to talk to them. And when you go talk to them, be humble in your approach. Say, this is what I saw. This is what I felt. Use I statements because you're, you're, what you're saying is I'm, I'm humble, I'm a sinner, I could be missing things, but here's where I'm at, right? Do not use you statements because you statements are I know facts, I understand it all, I see clearly. I think one of the biggest mistakes we, we make in conflict resolution is when we tell somebody, you made me feel. You made me feel, we all say this. The truth is, nobody can make you feel anything. If you are a a believer and you know that you're worth from God, if someone comes and says something to you about your worth, you can't go to that person and say, you made me feel worthless. Because you know what's true, that you are son of the or daughter of the Most High. That is where you find your worth, not in their words. So when you go to them and you say, you made me feel worthless, No, they didn't make you feel worthless. You were choosing to feel worthless in that moment. You weren't claiming God's truth in that moment. Now, that doesn't mean what they said did not hurt you. It's hurtful to hear things. We're human. It does not mean it didn't contribute to your emotions. But at the end of the day, one of the greatest ways that we can prepare ourselves for conflict resolution in a way that honor God is to take responsibility for our own emotions. And our own heart. Because when we say you, 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 then the problem is you. But when we say I, then say here's what I contribute to it. Here's what I saw. They share what I saw and then we come together. And then finally, go with the desire to find a path forward. Say, Lord, help me not want to be right, but help me to focus on the relationship. Right? Your son-in-law said this in the wedding to Marley. He said, I pray, or he said, I said, I will always work on the relationship and not being right. I loved that. And then finally, go into those conversations with the mindset that said, look, I want to bring God glory in this. 
because you success is not them responding and holding hands and you dancing under rainbows and sunshine all day because you have no control over what the other people do. Success, as I like to say it, is doing what God is calling you to do and trusting him with the results. As we sang earlier, the battle belongs to the Lord, so you lay our fear at his feet, and you say, I'm going to do what you called me to do. I'm going to do my best to be a peacemaker. And then I'm also going to be patient, because Scripture talks about how we bear with one another. So that means you don't always just have one conversation and everything's magic. Oh, Lord, I wish, right? Sometimes it's going to take 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 conversations to get some through something. Problem, and then there's not, that's not a problem. The problem with that is we're impatient. If God was as impatient as we were, he would have burned us all to a crisp years ago. But he suffers with us. Long-suffering stays with us while we grow. And we are called to do the same with each other. Can I get an amen? So it's my prayer this morning that you will feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit where you need to. But you won't feel defeated right? Because he's the way maker. Battle belongs to him. You say, God, I repent. I repent of the way I'm handling this. I pray you help me to handle it in a way that honors you and that you hold me to account. Don't let me out of this. Because the moment you walk out of here and the feeling of the service and the sermon and the music leaves you, it's so easy to slip into those old ways. And then it's my prayer that no matter how the other people respond, that as you are obedient to God in, in, in all of your conflict, you will bring him glory. And you'll watch him change your heart and how you respond to things, irregardless of the other person. And that will set you up for future success in other conflicts that come down the road. Once again, which bring him glory. Amen.